Welcome back. Today we really begin to settle into the traditional class rhythm of getting just a little bit further behind the schedule every day. We start off by coming back to Baron and Luthien, and then we move on to the near Nyth Arnoidiad, and we will just begin our discussion of Turin Turambar before the bell tolls. Okay. Uh, on to plunge right back in in the interest of not dropping too much further behind today. Uh, I, a few things I want to come back to about the story of Baron and Luthien, or rather just kind of looking back at some of the big picture things. Um, remember, as we've seen before, um, that evil is always associated. The essence of evil is self-focus, uh, the desire towards oneself, which has the two corollaries, which almost always appear uh, in Tolkien's world, of the desire, therefore, to dominate others and to use others for one's own benefit, uh, and, to, and, and also the tendency towards solitude and away from community and away from real, uh, from real bonds with other people. Uh, this kind of thing... Uh, you know, whereas, of course, the, 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 the contrary to that, the essence of goodness, the way that what defines the way that good people act and, and defines good actions themselves are actions of mercy. Mercy being, of course, premised upon that. You think about what, what mercy means. Mercy means considering the point of view, the feelings, desires, and needs of someone over whom you have power, right? You have it in your power to harm them, or to inflict something upon them. Perhaps you even have the right. Perhaps they have earned punishment. But you have it in your power to show them mercy uh, based on compassion. right? So, so, so mercy, for that reason, often associated with goodness, community, faithfulness, and self-sacrifice. Sort of the ultimate expression to put someone else's good so far above your own that you're willing to sacrifice your own good for their sake. This, of course, is the, the logical extreme opposite of that desire for dominion, uh, to subordinate all others to your own good. Um, and this, the story of Baron and Luthien uh, illustrates what this kind of goodness looks like, I think, most consistently and most profoundly of any of Tolkien's stories. It's really kind of the central drama. And we can see these two things, both these, uh, th- these, the ex- these expressions of evil and these expressions of good in several of the little side plots that are going on. Finrod and his oath, for instance, right? Finrod knows uh, that... I mean, not only did he know... Does he know as soon as Baron says, uh, Hi, I have, my, you know, uh, I have your ring that you gave to my father, Bari, here. Remember, you swore the vow to help uh, you know, my father's house in, all, in, in every need. Uh, I, I need help. Can you help me? And so it's not just then that Finrod says, okay, I now know for a fact that I'm screwed, right? He knows it earlier on. Remember, he, for, he foretells this. He knows that he's going to be destroyed by his, that he's going to die as a result of his vow. But he keeps it anyway. Um, and, he, and his vow, uh, his vow is... A positive vow. His vow is a self-sacrificial vow. He is, he's sworn a vow of self-sacrifice, basically. Why, by the way, did he do this? Why, has fin, why is Finrod beholden to the house of Bari here? Does anyone recall the incident? It's a brief little mention in the middle of the previous chapter. 
Barahir and his people save Finrod's life during the Dagor Bragalach, the Battle of Sudden Flame. He's trapped and cut off and surrounded uh, and is going to be killed. And then Barahir and his people come in and uh, with much difficulty and much self-sacrifice rescue him and save his life. Uh, And in recognition of that, in recompense for that, he swears that vow of, of loyalty, not in a, in a vassal lord sense, um, but that he is going to be loyal to his allegiance to the, uh, his, his, his alliance to uh, the house of Barahir, no matter what, and no matter what it costs him, because he only has his life as a result of their sacrifice for him. So when Baron comes, he, he's ready for it. He knows uh, I'm... This, this vow is going to be my death. But he doesn't grudge that because he would have died anyway. Um, so if he can give his life back in order to, to save and to help Barahir in his house, he will have done, uh, you know, to him this, does, this is not even an extraordinary act. To him that is simply justice. That's simply fair, right? And he does it and he honors it. Even so knowing, you know, every interest of, pragmatism is against this. And it's noteworthy because there are a whole bunch of vows that, are, that, that get broken. And Finrod doesn't break his vow. He has lots of reasons to break his vow. We will see other people break their vows and break their, their oaths of loyalty for much less, with much less excuse than, uh, than Finrod has. But his own oath holds, as he says. Um, now, contrary to that, and of course he ends up sacrificing his life you know the the werewolf comes to kill baron and he you know wrestles with it and kills it with his teeth uh which you know i think if you tried to do that one on film it's not going to work very well uh in fact there's a whole lot about that sequence um that wouldn't work on film very well um i People sometimes ask me, you know, when it was like, oh, the Hobbit films are coming out. Uh, you know, that's really cool. Do you think they're going to do films on the Silmarillion afterwards? And my response is usually, oh, goodness, I hope not. Uh, I have deep, deep skepticism about the ability to do that properly. I mean, not that the story of Baron and Luthien wouldn't, like, in theory... Make you know it's not a story worthy of you know of an epic film, but I don't know it, the chances of its being ugly would be really really high, I think. Uh, but anyway, I don't get to get too distracted by that. So anyway, so so here so so Finrod gives his life. Now we have Finrod and his oath. What do we have on the other side? Immediately juxtaposed with it, Finrod's oath is the, the good news. The bad news. Yes, the oath of Theonor and his sons. Um, that's a bad oath. What's bad about it? Or, wait, perhaps I should begin with the question, what is it? What is the vow, the famous oath that Theonor and all seven of his sons made? Remember this was made right before they left Valinor? During that that big meeting after the darkening of Valinor when Feanor is giving his famous speech convincing all the Noldor to leave Valinor, he sort of punctuates it with this terrible oath. Next. Uh, they swear to you know, fight anyone who takes the Cimarron. <laughs> Man, Valinor. Yes. Yes. To anyone who, who tries to take 
or keep or retain or even think about with desire the Silmarils. They claim the Silmarils for themselves. And they will they and 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 no one else can have them. And they're they, like the, the action portion of their oath is that they will pursue with vengeance anybody who tries to get between them and the Silmarils, who tries to take or keep the Silmarils for themselves. In other words, their vow is an intrinsically self-focused vow. Their vow is this horrible and powerful, powerful because binding articulation of that greedy love that has been Feanor's problem with the Silmarils all along, right? So immediately, Finrod's vow kicks the, the Feanorian vow into play as he comes before his, the people of Nargothrond and says, okay, so I'm going to go help Baron get a Silmaril, and Kelgorm and Kurufin are there, which is especially unfortunate as Kelgorm... Ke- there are some, like, decent sons of Feanor. Mithros and, and Maglor in particular are, 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 are nice guys, uh, though still bound by the oath. Um, Kurufin, not so much. Nor Kelgorm. Caranthir is even worse, uh, but still, these two, is, is, these are, is, is an unfortunate pair to have in Nargothrond at the time. And they immediately invoke their own oath. And then what happens? Immediately what happens? They're in Nargothrond. As Kelgorm and Kurufin start talking, we have another one of our echoes, another recapitulation of an earlier moment in the story. What do they do? They do much more than just say, hey, dude, you can't get a Silmaril. They're ours. Lay off the Silmarils. That would, you know, be awkward in itself. But they do more than that. What do they do? Yeah, he's like, uh, let me remind you of, uh, you know, <laughs> chapter and verse of our oath. Right? Perhaps you have forgotten, which, of course, we know Finrod has not forgotten for an instant, uh, their, their oath. And then what? They go on to give speeches, both of them. Powerful speeches. What's the result of the speeches? They don't just say, hey, you shouldn't go after the Silmarils. They don't just say, hey, we're not going to help you go get the Silmarils because there are Silmarils. Which, of course, one could be asking, then why aren't you going in quest for them, you gits? I mean, if the whole point is to possession of the Silmarils, perhaps we're going to do everything we can to keep anybody else from trying to get them is a little counterproductive. See, the positive impulse of let us join together in alliance uh, and together pool our forces uh, in you know, fellowship against Morgoth, that would be the positive impulse, you see. That might even work. It works for Baron and Luthien. But, uh, but no. The oath of Feanor is always self-destructive. Um, you'll see a reference in, in the reading for Friday uh, to how much Morgoth loves the Oath of Feanor. Uh, it's, it's like his, the Oath of Feanor is like his ace in the hole. Anytime anyone gets up at it, he's like, ah, it's all right. The Oath of Feanor will take care of them. And it, and it does. I mean, it's, 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 it's destructive. And not just destructive of others, but self-destructive. It's one thing guaranteed to prevent them ever getting the Silmarils again. 
But you remember what happens in Nargothrond? They give a speech about how much, how going after Simran will create the ruin, the ruin of that, that area. Yeah. And so all the elves get yeah. They all get scared and they're like, "Ooh, we're not going out. We're not going. We, we we better make sure we we never leave Nargothrond again and never go out to help anybody else, right?" So the entire uh, people of Nargothrond become isolationist as a result. This is not a good impulse. Or at least it's a it's a perilous one. And Finrod says, "Hey, oh, look, I don't care. I, I, I'm going to help Baron. Is anybody coming with me?" A small number of people go. What happens to Nargothrond after he leaves? Who's in charge? His brother. Oradreth, yeah. Officially, Telegram and Kurfin are running things. He's the one who, who sort of keeps Finrod's crown for him, right? Um, and later he's going to become, when, when, when Turin comes to Nargothrond, Oradreth is in charge. But that's because they've already kicked out Telegram and Kurfin by that time. The speeches that they give, we are explicitly reminded during the description of those speeches of the speech that Feanor gave in Tyrion, leading the Noldor in rebellion uh, against the Valar. And that's what Kelegorm and Kurufin do. It's not just that they say, hey, we resist or, you know, we'll attempt to veto um, the, you know, the quest for the Silmaril. They usurp Nargothrond from Finrod and from Oradreth. They kick, they, they, they manage essentially, I mean, Finrod helps by insisting he's going to leave, but they essentially manage to de-king Finrod and take over. Yeah, you, you, you have a good time, Finrod. You take off. You know, we're now moving in and taking over Nargothrond. And then they find Luthien and Kelgorm's like, and then I shall marry Luthien and then I'll get Doriath too. This is going really well. Not to mention the fact that she's hot. Right, and Kelgorm is really interested in Luthien. Um, so this is this is not going to get. So we, the way that we get the juxtaposition of those two oaths, and the obvious contrast between the two of them and what they lead to, um, is a really strong, uh, a really important moment, I think. Here, and we get a recapitulation of the rebellion. They lead the elves of Nargothrond in rebellion against Finrod in a way parallel to the way that Feanor led the, the whole Noldor uh, to, uh, in rebellion against the Valar. The story of Huan the Hound, um, which is, I mean, that would be a cool freestanding story. Huan is a really interesting character. Um, what is he characterized by? What's the most important thing about Huan? Ooh, I think I forgot to plug in my laptop and it will die soon. Yeah. He's loyal even perhaps when he doesn't have reason to be. Good. Yeah, it's one of the most noble things Huan does is stay with Kelegorm, right? He doesn't leave the first time he gets a well, I say get a chance to. Obviously Huan can leave any time he wants to. Who's going to stop him? But um, he still follows Kelegorm even after he helps set Luthien free and he realizes, you know, Kelegorm is you know, a bad apple who's getting badder all the time, but yet he remains faithful. Um, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't give up on Kelgorm. Until when? When's the moment when he officially abandons Kelgorm? Tony? Uh, when Kelgorm tries to kill Baron. Yeah. When they come across, when Kelgorm and Kurufin, having been finally kicked out of Nargothrond, come across Baron and Luthien in the wilderness and, and try to kill Baron and capture Luthien by force. 
then he's like, all right, all right. You've now crossed the line. I can't be a party to this anymore. Um, so he is, faithfulness is one of the things which is just, is, is, is hugely important to him and self-sacrifice. He, like Finrod, has a destiny and he knows what his fate is. He knows when he goes to hunt Karkaroth that he's going to die. Karkaroth is clearly the fulfillment of his prophesied doom. But he does it, knowing, it, and therefore, self-sacrificially, at the, at the price of his own death, saves, well, of course, not Baron as it turns out, uh, but most everybody else, uh, saves Doriath um, and rescues Thingol. Baron and Luthien, of course, though themselves in their relationship most perfectly embody, and I say most perfectly of any of Tolkien's characters, I think, most perfectly embody all of those good impulses, um, those mercy, faithfulness, community or togetherness, self-sacrifice. Um, and, you know, we touched on, you know, just thinking back to some of the things that we touched on last time, Luthien's insistence on the two of them being together is not just about her loyalty to him and not just about her saying, you know, I love, like, so powerful are the moshi-goshi lovey feelings within me that I don't want to ever leave you. And it's much more than that. I mean, the, the love that they have and what they do together, what they share, is far more than just romance. It's not just, oh, I can't ever bear to be separated from you. That turns out to be true, actually. But, but it's more than that, right? We are together. You know, as what she keeps telling you, we are a unit. You can't go back on this now. Melian says the same thing. Right, Melian recognizes this. You have doomed either yourself or your daughter. It's too late to try to prevent Baron and Luthien. They are, they are together now. They are a unit. They cannot be separated. And Baron's misguided attempt at self-sacrifice, I shall go into danger alone and leave Luthien safe. Uh, again, good impulse, but misguided. She knows that A, can't happen. B, shouldn't happen. Because it's only by the two of them working together. Um, though it's not like the capture of the Silmaril is exactly a 50-50 proposition between the two of them, right? As is so often the case, when you have a man-woman team, the woman, a lot of the times, is way more powerful than the man. And that's certainly true of Luthien. Uh, remember, when we get to the Lord of the Rings and Sauron is the Dark Lord and the Great Enemy. Uh, remember that he is the same guy uh, who got absolutely whipped by Luthien single-handedly. Uh, well, I mean, not single-handedly. I mean, who on helped? I mean, I, he was there too, and that was a big deal. But I mean, she she comes, you know, it, you know, with the Dark Tower of Sauron and everything in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's kind of like the tower that Luthien just walks up to and blasts off the map with the song that she sings. I mean, she is amazingly powerful. Um, she casts into sleep everybody in Thangorodrim, right, right? Morgoth himself eventually, and all of the residents of Thangorodrim. She's a little tuckered out after that, right? So Baron sort of steps in at that point. Um, she is spent uh, as, you know, no one can blame her. Um, but 
of course, the ultimate, you know, the, the, as I said last time, the eucatastrophe of the already eucatastrophic Baron and Luthien story is the resurrection at the end. Um, and this is sort of the ultimate expression of the bonds of faithfulness and devotion. But it's not just between the two of them. That's the thing that I think is so important not to overlook, that theirs is not just the ultimate love story between two people. It is that. It is held up as that within this world. But it is the ultimate story of union. When she sings, she is, her songs are, are, are what is powerful, is how she expresses her power, right? It, it was her song that, that blasts uh, you know, Sauron's fortress. It's her song which, which knocks Morgoth off his throne, right? And I love that image of him sliding like a hill in avalanche onto the ground, right? And his iron crown goes rolling on the ground and Baron sneaks over to it and cuts off the Silmaril, right? Um, But the greatest song that she sings, the greatest song ever sung by anybody, by any of the children of Iluvatar is what? The song that she sings to Mandos when she and Baron are in his home. Yes, the song that she sings before Mandos. And what's that song about? It's not just about Baron. This is not like a... What's the mythological parallel we should be thinking of here? Um, In the Greek mythology, um, uh, I can't remember his his name, uh, Orpheus. Yes. Goes to the underworld to get his wife back. Yes. Hades is touched by his music. Yes. One thing to keep in mind when reading Tolkien, when you're making, when you're thinking of mythological stories, he knew Greek mythology and, you know, it's not, these things are not going to be there. Uh, be careful not to make the mistake with Tolkien. He's always going to be thinking North, Norse first, uh, Greece second. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it is not possible. It would be wildly inappropriate not to be thinking of Orpheus and Eurydice at this moment that Luthien is singing before Mandos and, uh, and causing Mandos, who has never had pity or relented before, uh, to weep for the first time ever and have pity and yield Baron back up. Um, but there's a difference. When Orpheus sings before Hades, he is singing of his own grief and of his loss and of his tragedy. What is Luthien singing of? Tony? Yes. She sings of the sorrows of the two kindreds. She becomes a spokesperson for both elves and men. And that is what moves Mandos. The two of them are the first and most important union of elves and men. This doesn't happen very often. It's happened twice, almost happened three times. Okay, no, it's happened. Okay, the other one hasn't happened yet. It's happened once. It almost happened twice. Probably should have happened twice. It almost happens in, with Turin. You'd think probably he would have been much better off had it happened, actually. Uh, there are lots of what-if games one can play with the life of Turin Turinbar. Uh, <laughs> one of them certainly is, what if he had uh, married Finduilas in Nargothrond? Um, there are a bunch of external implications to suggest that that's like what should have happened. Glaurung appears to be going out of his way to prevent that from happening, for instance, um, which is a pretty good tip-off that um, it would have been good had it 
in fact happened. But anyway, Baron and Luthien is the first, biggest, most important of the union between between elves and men. That is their own union. It's not just about like they, the two of them, in their own relationship with themselves, perfectly model the kind of union, the 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 the, the kind of of bond that people should have. They are themselves the bridge between their two peoples. They are themselves the perfect union of the children of Iluvatar in general. And that's sort of the vision that she sings about um, during her song. She sings about their sorrow and about their suffering. Um, And she, and her song brings them together. Now, their story ends in tragedy. It's characterized that way. The end of it is she becomes immortal and partakes of his mortality. And thus, they lost her whom they most loved. See what's happening there at the end of the story? We are getting the elf bias here. Remember, these are elven stories told by the elves, remembered by the elves, transmitted through the elves. And this is one place where we can see very clearly the elvish perspective. Is it tragic? It's not tragic from Baron's perspective. Is it tragic from Luthien's perspective? I'm not sure that it is. Only if you assume that death is ultimately a bad thing. But we've been invited not to view things that way. Death is the gift of Iluvatar. It is true that when humans die, they go, the elves know not whither. And therefore, they are separated from the elves for the entire rest of the length of the existence of Arda because the elves are bound to it and then the humans are free from it and go who knows where. And so their separation is going to last for millennia because the rest of the elves, all the rest of her family and everybody else, they're going to linger and they're going to linger and they're going to stay here and they won't see her until maybe the new heaven and new earth, but you know, that's pretty far down the road. But, but again, that's the elven perspective. From the human perspective, you know, it might or perhaps it should look different. Um, remember this too, uh, when down the road we read the parallel story to this, that is the story of Aragorn and Arwen, um, the story of Aragorn's deathbed and the conversation that he has with Arwen on his deathbed, which happens like 120 years after the end of The Lord of the Rings. Um, but anyway, I mean, eventually it happens. He's human. And so he's, he comes... The time to die, and he and Arwen have this conversation where she has not quite shed her elvish bias uh, on this subject, uh, but he doesn't share it, and it, that's it's an interesting moment. Um, it is my goal to begin the story of Tour and Tour and Barber for the end of class, which means uh, I have quite a bit of work to do between now and then. Because well, one last thing, I, one thing I want to touch on, because the story of Baron and Luthien really uh, gives some some of the clearest examples of it, and it's going to be something which is going to have relevance for the whole rest of the semester. And that is the nature of magic in Tolkien's world. Um, This is a complicated issue, and we're... I mean, I'm not going to be able to sort of settle it in just a couple minutes here, but I would just encourage you to look at the examples in this story, because I said I think they're, they're very clear and they're very interesting. The examples of the exertion of magical power here... It's, how does it work? For instance, uh, the examples that I would point to, we get uh, Luthien freeing herself from the tree, right? By making her hair grow, um, in which not, you know, Prince Charming doesn't climb up it 
she, she climbs down it, right? Uh, she rescues herself with her long hair, which is a really interesting kind of twist on the, on the traditional fairy tale. Uh, so there's also the battle between Finrod and Sauron, when Sauron discovers them. And they don't just, it's not like they just get ambushed, right? I mean, they, they, Finrod and Sauron go toe-to-toe. And it's an equal fight, or almost an equal fight. Sauron wins. Luthien, she does not win, right? And that's, of course, the next example, uh, the exertion, the multiple exertions of Luthien's power when she comes to the island to rescue Baron. And, of course, her acts of power in, you know, before Morgoth. Think of Finrod and Sauron here. They fight. This is a magical battle, um, a really high-end magical battle between two really powerful individuals. What does it look like? How does it work? The book sort of describes it as a sort of battle a la West Side Story. <laughs> they sing to one another. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, it's, like, it's a singing competition. They're singing contrary songs. It's like slam poetry invested with titanic power. I mean, it's, it, that's, that's what it is. I mean, they, they're singing songs. How does Sauron win, by the way? Finrod is singing of all of these good, happy things like self-sacrifice and rescue and freedom and beauty and in the distance, the blessed realm which still lies untouched by evil. Where does Sauron go in his song? He talks about the king's Oh, he whips out the Noldor kryptonite. <laughs> and Finrod goes down. Yes, exactly. Oh, oh, the wave riders falling into the sea. Oh, man. And Finrod falls, right? Um, there will come a time... In the Fellowship of the Ring, um, there's a famous moment when Frodo and Sam are talking to Goadriel, and they talk about magic explicitly. Um, and Goadriel says a thing which sounds a little bit confusing. She, Sam has made a comment earlier that he would really like to see some elf magic. He's like, we've been living among all these really powerful elves. We haven't seen anybody do any magic, and I always thought it would be cool to see magic, so I'd really like to see some magic. And Goadriel says to him, um, you said you wanted to see some elf magic, Though I don't quite know what you mean by that. That is, she seems to be puzzled at the idea, this idea of magic. Because she says, because you use the same word to describe the deceits of the enemy. It raises the question, what, what, what is magic exactly? Well, power is exerted. It's exerted between Finrod and Sauron. We will see this kind of thing a lot. When Gandalf and Saruman face off, when Saruman is up in his tower and, 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 and you know, he's almost beaten, it's not going to be obvious. Unlike in the film, no fireballs will be thrown. Well, that is in the extended edition of the film. No fireballs will be thrown. But they're fighting. It's a fight between the two of them. Usually, you can't see these fights. 
This, by the way, is one of the reasons I would be very uncomfortable with a film on the Silmarillion, because what would they do with that? I mean, think what they would have to do with the Battle of Finrod and Sauron. They'd probably be throwing fireballs at each other. And the attempt to visually represent the way that magic works, I mean, it's hard to imagine how it wouldn't be cheapened uh, in the visual representation. But... Song is connected with magic all the way through. We will see this also to be true of Galadriel and in many other places. Um, this, of course, should not be surprising, right? Remembering how creation happened in the first place. Music and verse has power. It has the sub-creative power. Within this world, it, se- it has even something like creative power. Because remember, it was the song of the Ainur that was the instrument to bring the primary world into being in this story. So Luthien's, the power of Luthien's song and of her voice is, is tremendous. Song is power. It is creative force. Anyway, a little side note. Keep that in mind as you see these things happening. Um, We turn from joy to tragedy. Uh, And I mean tragedy in the classical sense. Aristotle defines tragedy uh, as a story which evokes fear and pity uh, in his readers. And they're very... The story of the Nirnaith Arnoidiad is in these terms an immensely tragic story. Um, Even its name is really powerful. The other battles are all, co- are all called Dagor something or other. Dagor just means battle, right? So you've got the Dagor Bragolach, right? The Battle of Sudden Flame. This isn't called Dagor anything. It's just called Unnumbered Tears. Not the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, just, just Unnumbered Tears. Um, of course, the story of Turin Turambar is one of the best examples of tragedy uh, a classical tragedy, Aristotelian tra- tragedy that I know of. Um, the story of the near knife, right, is so tragic because it almost works. It starts in all exactly the right ways. Remember, right before the Dagor Bragalach, right before the fall of Fingolfin, Fingolfin is saying, hey guys, let's get together and um, start an offensive against Morgoth because I don't think things are, I don't think, I, I don't think we're going to get any stronger here, right? We've got the men have come and joined us and they're all integrated and we're allies. And, um, I, you know, I, you know, Fingolfin's like, I have the sinking suspicion we're going nowhere but down from here. So this is our best shot. Let's try to take him down. And remember the response to that at the time is, uh, let's wait for some indeterminate reason and indeterminate time. Um, And of course, Morgoth goes on the offensive, takes them by surprise, and the ruin of Beleriand begins. And of course, the death of Fingolfin himself. So now, this second time, Mithros has a good idea. Okay, we're not as strong as we were when Fingolfin proposed this, but, but let's do an offensive. Let's get together. 
you and me, remember Fingon and Mithros are buds, right? Fingon is now high king of the Noldor because of Fingolfin's death. And Mithros, you know, you and I, let's, let's get together, you know, the sons of Fanor and the sons of Fingolfin and Finarfin, and we'll, let's bond together and we'll, 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 we'll take them, you know, we're working together, we'll take the forces of Morgoth as between Hammer and Anvil, and it's an awesome plan, and that's a good thing. Clearly a good thing to do. And it almost works. Even with the things that went wrong in it, it would have worked. You also have the the catastrophic arrival of the Gondolindrim, right? Turgon unexpectedly comes out of nowhere and Fingon is like, whoa, okay, things are already starting to get screwed up, but holy crap, Turgon is here. This is fantastic, right? Um, why does Morgoth win? How does Morgoth win? It's not because he has an enormous number of orcs. It's not because Glaurung now comes out in his full strength and almost nobody can stand before him. It's not because he still has all these Balrogs running around. And I emphasize running and not flying around. <laughs> uh, Balrogs don't have wings. Um, anyway, the, 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 it's, it's, for none of these reasons, neither dragon nor Balrog nor anything else would have caused the victory of Morgoth. What did? Uh, the fact that the elves and the men couldn't hold together and wait until the exact time, and someone, I don't know, just, I forget who it was, but they shot an arrow in the crowd of orcs, and then, you know, time was on the Yeah, uh, Gwyndor blows it. Uh, he's the one who takes off. Though even that almost, like, that... The, the plan that Morgoth had to make the elven strategy backfire almost backfires on him, right? And, and uh, Gwyndor leading the charge, the ill-advised and rash charge uh, of, of the people of Fingon. Um, almost actually, I mean, Morgoth is like shaking and nervous because they actually bust open the gates of Thangorodrim. Um, so this is... But, but even then, and Mithros is delayed and doesn't come up when he's supposed to, and the whole thing is, is going to crap, but they still would have won. Uh, the man, some of the men betrayed them. Yeah, the treachery of men. Yeah. Uldor the Accursed. That's a pretty awesome name, you have to admit. Uh, you put that on some business cards, it's going to look really impressive at conferences. Uldor uh, the Accursed comes in and attacks Mithros from the rear. Chaos, loss, destruction, massacre ensues. And I emphasize massacre. The entire host of Fingon is, is, is obliterated. Not a single one of them returns. All of the men of Dor Loman are killed to a man. Who escapes from, from, from the near knife? Unfortunately, the sons of Feanor, all seven of them, manage to escape. A lot of their people don't, but they do. Scattered, but they're alive. Uh, and Turgon and most of his people. They're the only ones who actually escape. How do they escape? Uh, the men hold off the rest of the Morgoth forces while they escape. Yes, the, the stand of the men of Dorloman, Hurin and Huor and, uh, and their people, the children of Hador. Um, at the fens of Serek, and thus was the treachery of Oldor redressed. Right? You have the self-sacrificial act by the men of Dor Loman, atoning for, reversing 
the treachery of Uldor, uh, and thereby saving Turgon and all of his people. Um, when Fingon and his people are gathered and ready to go, and they're starting off and they're feeling pretty optimistic because nothing has gone wrong yet, uh, they start a, a chant, a war cry, right? Fingon cries out. Something, you remember what he cries out? Soon the day has come. Yes, yes. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. The day has come. And they all cry in response. The night is passing. We have hope, right? Okay, things have been kind of bad. The Dagor Bragalak, that was really uncomfortable. But the day has come. It's not even it will come, right? It has come. The night is passing. Progressive, right? It's in the process of going away, the night. After things um, go badly, and most everybody's dead, um, who still retains hope? Not for himself. He knows he's going to die. In fact, he contextualizes his words by saying, I say this with the foresight of death. Because I am going to die, I have this prophetic moment. And he makes a hopeful prophecy. To Turgon, what does he say? Do you remember? It's on page 194. Yes. This I say to you, Lord, with the eyes of death, that we part here forever, and I shall not look on your white walls again. From you and from me, a new star shall arise. Farewell. Okay, so the night hasn't passed, it turns out. But, but a new star will arise. And then, after all of the other men of Dorloman is dead, his brother Huor is dead, everybody else is dead, and there Hurin stands alone, completely by himself amidst a crowd of enemies, fighting with an axe two-handed. What does he shout every time he kills somebody? Day shall, day shall come again. The stubborn hope of Hurin, as he stands amidst the, his, all of his dead people. Um... I don't think there is any moment in any of Tolkien's writings that I find more moving than that image, the stand of Hurin and his his shouts, day shall come again. Not for a while, though, as it turns out. Uh, Not for his son, for a while, anyway. Um... His son eventually takes the name Turambar, though I believe on the road to it, he sets the record for most names any one single character has. Um, Thorin rarely gets up in the morning without changing his name. (laughs) But what is his name? He is called, significantly, uh, in the the title given to this story, he's called Turin Turambar, which is his last name, Right? And notice, he's not called by the people, the, the people of Brondir, whom he ends up with. They don't call him Turin Turambar, they just call him Turambar, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the name that he takes. So uh, combining those two names, Turin, his given name by his parents, with Turambar, the last name he takes among the people of Brethil, um, sort of, it's, it's sort of an interesting combination to be sort of the final identity of him 
in the title of the story. What does it mean? What does Turambar mean? Of all the names he gives himself, this one is probably the worst idea. Others of them are, you know, a little bit petty, like Nathan the wronged. Dude, come on, get over it. You weren't that wronged. Yeah. Master of Doom. Yeah, that's going to end well. Uh, Yeah, the guy who sets up and says, so I am glad that I have successfully thwarted fate. Hooray! Yeah, that's, he's probably uh, got a bad surprise in store. Um, The final words of his sister? Farewell, my twice beloved. Yeah, and she, what does she name him? She says it in Elvish, but the translation is she, she plays on, on the name Turambar, and she turns it around. Master of Doom by Doom Master. Um, happy to be dead, she adds. Of course, he's not dead. It, he would have been happier indeed had he been dead, but uh, uh, things haven't gotten quite bad enough for him yet. Um, the Master of Doom, and so much of his story is focused on fighting his doom, trying to avoid his doom. Um, Some do. Uh, I I see on the discussion forum that some have uh, made the very logical connection between Turin and Oedipus. Um, But there's more than just incest that uh, Oedipus and Turin have in common. Um, The primary thing that Turin and Oedipus have in common is this desire to thwart fate. I mean, Oedipus' career is defined by uh, both his own efforts and his parents' efforts to avoid a prophesied doom. And Turin, much of his life is defined by that same impulse. Um, I I love the line when uh, Brandir is revealing to him what he heard Glaurung say and and Tolkien says, for in those words, Turin heard the feet of his doom overtaking him, right? <laughs> He's, you can run, but it will catch up to you. Um, you can't get away. I said before uh, in one of the snow day classes, snow week classes, I suppose, um, I talked about doom a little bit and the significance of that word. Um, and doom, that is doom means both fate and it also means choice, something you have to decide, a judgment. And Turin is the classic, the clearest instance to sort of look at this and how it works. Um, There is nowhere in Tolkien's writings where the issues of fate and free will are brought more forcibly to the surface than they are with the story of Turin. Um, We talk about his doom. Well, which doom? Doom meaning fate or doom meaning choice. Um, Both seem to impact him. It seems clearly inappropriate or or at least insufficient to talk about either one as being the primary or certainly not the exclusive determinant of his destiny. That is, you can't say, well, Turin was cursed by Morgoth and therefore... He was just screwed left, right, and center. I mean, again and again and again, things happen, uh, you know, bad for him. And how unlucky for Turin. That's not 
that doesn't tell the whole story, right? Because his own choices have a big impact on his fate. There are plainly many instances in which had he chosen differently, things could have happened differently. But at the same time, it is equally inappropriate to say, so Turin, you know, the guy, you know, he made his own bed and now he's lying in it at the end, right? Thanks to all of his crappy decisions, his life was horrible and he got nobody to blame but himself. Also, clearly not a satisfactory explanation. So, where do we go with this? Um... I want you, in addition to finishing the Quintus Silmarillion for next time, I want you to take some time to think about this. Um, That is, I'm going to ask this question again at the beginning of class next time, and I want answers to it. Uh, That is, how do these two things work together? Where, Where are there moments, are there moments that you would point to of special significance where you, in Turin's life, where you say, clearly, here is his own will acting. Clearly, here is fate acting upon him. How does it work in Turin's life? Where do we really come down on this question? And of course, I'm going to want to come back to, we don't get um, the very end of the story of the Hurin family here. Um, It ends after, uh, the the chapter ends uh, after he, he kills himself. But, the true end of their story um, is not yet. Hurin is, Hurin, Hurin is going to come back and we'll, we'll see him finish it. Um, and I want to be looking at, um, I want to be looking at that. I mentioned last time, the most important grave site. Uh, you know, the, we were talking about those important, significant, hallowed grave sites um, in the Silmarillion. The most important one is going to be theirs, Turin's and Neonor's. Um, and the scene that happens at the end, the end of their story in it next time, I, I really want to come back to it. I said it's in, it's, it's in the next chapter in the Ruin of Doriath, but, um, but it's very important. So, uh, thank you. See you next time. We will finally be come out the other end of tragedy in the next class. Okay, tune in next time for further discussion of Turin and brief glances at several hugely important stories, The Ruin of Doriath, The Fall of Gondolin, and The Voyage of Eärendil. We're finishing up the Quintus Omerillion for next time, so there'll be plenty to talk about. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.